1: Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. As a special bonus treat, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite Gilded Age episodes from the Bowery Boys archive. Alva Vanderbilt was picky. There's no surprise in that, and she was particularly picky about the architect that designed not only her French Renaissance petit chateau dominating Fifth Avenue, but also her sumptuous imitation of Versailles, Marble House in Newport, Rhode Island. For Alva, there was no choice. For her demanding desires, the Paris-trained Richard Morris Hunt was the only choice. The story of Richard Morris Hunt is an extraordinary one. It's been said it was he that gave not only New York, but spots elsewhere the look of the Gilded Age. From prominent and prestigious New England beginnings, Hunt translated the European Beaux arts aesthetic for American shores. His commissions included the facade of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the base of the Statue of Liberty. He also created great mansions for Alva and Caroline Astor as well, and perhaps the grandest mansion of them all during the Gilded Age, and that was saying something, was the extravagant and expansive Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina for another of the Vanderbilt clan, George, Alva's brother-in-law. While many enthusiasts of the Gilded Age today discuss the achievements of the later trailblazing firm of McKim, Mead, and White, and its star architect, Stanford White, it was the vision and the eye of Richard Morris Hunt, who in many ways set the stage. In this episode, Tom and Greg delve deeply into the story and the world of Richard Morris Hunt, and I could not be more pleased to share it with you here today. It will give you new eyes as you look back. To that very gilded age.
2: Tom, a show about places, about architecture, but more importantly, (laughs) about a man. So where does this story get started?
3: Well, not in New York as much as I would like to start us with the opening night costume party of Alva Vanderbilt's Petit Chateau that he designed. We're not going to start there. Richard Morris Hunt was born on October 31st, 1827, in Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, to a wealthy and very well-connected family. His father, Jonathan, was a very well-respected lawyer, and he served down in Washington, D.C., in Congress. And his mother, Jane Maria Levitt, came from a very prominent family herself in Connecticut. And so there, in Brattleboro, Richard, his parents, and his four siblings— lived in a beautiful home that was, in fact, the largest home in town. Things took a turn uh, during his father's second term in in Congress in April of 1832, when Richard was just four years old. His father became very ill with cholera and died on May 15, 1832, only 45 years old, leaving behind Richard's mother and five children. They briefly moved back to Vermont and then to New Haven, But finally, Jane, the mother, moved with three of her children, including eight-year-old Richard, to New York, where they rented rooms on West 4th Street, um, and where his mother really befriended a cool group of
2: painters and intellectuals. Oh, this, this sort of took a twist, actually. 1830s artists, this is almost beginning to sound a bit bohemian.
3: Well, certainly swanky. I'm not sure how bohemian it was. I mean, here on West 4th Street near Washington Square, Washington Square had actually just become a park in 1827. But here, Richard, according to his biographer, Paul Baker, started already showing interest in architecture and construction. At a very early age, he built a, a, a small brick and wooden house in his yard on West 4th Street. Baker writes, quote, in spite of constant punishment for getting himself dirty, he dug a cellar and very carefully laid bricks for the foundation. The finished cottage even had decorated crossbeams, which his older brother William carved with his penknife. And somehow, in 1836, when he was only nine years old, Richard <laughs> Morris Hunt became acquainted maybe even befriended the architect and designer of Trinity Church Richard Upjohn. <laughs>
2: what a what a natural and and obviously a, a normal childhood that many of us uh, can relate to meeting world famous architects of the day building houses in the backyard.
3: Oh his story only becomes increasingly relatable Greg as we move forward. <laughs>
2: But even with the death of his father, they were still doing pretty well for themselves. They were rather comfortable.
3: They were very well off, actually, yeah. And they had connections everywhere. Um, The family soon moved to Boston, where they were part of that city's elite society. However, while living there, his older brother, William, who was studying by this time at Harvard, came down with a terrible cough, and following doctor's orders, Richard's mother decided to move William and, in fact, the entire family for a year to a warmer climate, to Italy. Fortunately, they, they already knew Daniel Webster, who had been Secretary of State in, for the United States, and, and he wrote introductory letters to various ambassadors and foreign ministers in France and Italy. And in October 1843, the whole group set sail for Europe. This was 1843, Greg, and Richard Morris Hunt would not return to
2: New York for more than 12 years. So he was in Europe during his teenage years and into his 20s. So these are some pretty formative years. The whole thing sounds so dreamy. Upon arrival,
3: I mean, they spent several months in Paris, and then they headed south to Italy, where they lived comfortably in that expat community. Um, And he spent his days sightseeing and sketching
2: street scenes and Roman ruins. How idyllic, almost. And he had four siblings with him at this time? Yes, including
3: his older brother William, the one who had helped with his house construction in the yard on West 4th. And William, by this time, was becoming quite a painter and a sculptor. Uh, But meanwhile, Richard was off visiting Florence and Milan in the early 1840s, sketching the sites and becoming familiar, you know, with ancient buildings and Italian Renaissance structures.
2: And so when did he actually start training as an architect?
3: Well, he spent a couple of years studying at a boys school in Geneva. And while he was there, he started studying architecture and by this point in 1845, his mother had moved to Paris. So he moved to Paris and then passed the entrance exam the following year in 1846 to study architecture at the very elite École des Beaux-Arts. And in fact, he would be the very first American to study at the École des Beaux-Arts.
2: And this is a place that we have mentioned on several shows. It is very important to architectural mm-hmm. history. So what exactly, so what precisely is the École des Beaux-Arts?
3: Well, literally translated, it's a fine arts school. Okay, but this is a college of fine arts that has origins in the 17th century with various sections for different kinds of arts, painting and sculpture, and also architecture. The school is located on the Rue Bonaparte on the left bank of Paris, very close to the Seine. And in the school, students attended a mix of academic lectures, uh, but also worked you know, and studied in a studio or an atelier of an actual architect, a patron, and, and learned from them, from an actual working architect. It was very difficult to get admitted. Uh, Richard actually failed the first time that he tried, and then he doubled down throughout 1846 in order to gain admission the second time that he applied.
2: And how long did he study
3: there? For quite a while, actually, up through 1852, uh, spending years learning the basics of French architecture, building up a real working knowledge of classical design. And then, as one does, he took off for a couple more years to travel around Europe and throughout the Middle East, uh, sketching, also collecting paintings and art and souvenirs and books.
2: Back... For a moment, to Paris here and to his patron. Who was his patron?
3: Uh, He was an architect named Hector Le Fuel. And he was also something of a father figure to Richard. And I want to pull back for a second because the Hunts were living in Paris at a really interesting time because while they were there, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, the, the nephew of the original Napoleon, came to power in 1851, establishing the Second Empire. And in a really fortunate turn of events, Napoleon III named Hunt's patron, Le Fuel, to be one of his architects. And Napoleon had really big plans for transforming and modernizing Paris under the direction of Baron von Hausmann. They would make mm. Paris into the city that we know today, the city of, you know, with beautiful boulevards and construct parks and railroad stations, the opera. Uh, And give it a whole new modern infrastructure. So Le Fuel was working on an overhaul of the Louvre. He was actually directing the construction of new buildings that were connecting the old Louvre with the Tuileries Palace, which just sat next to it. It was a massive project, and he actually hired Richard Morris Hunt to work on the project. So
2: even before Hunt did anything in the United States, he was already working on sort of little passion projects like the Louvre. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Just a little project in Paris on the Rue de Rivoli. Yes, <laughs> amazingly. Um, according to the Baker biography, Hunt drew up the plans and designed much of one of these connecting wings, the Pavillon de la Bibliothèque, the, the Library Pavilion, uh, which is part of the wing of the Louvre that faces the Palais Royal along the Rue de Rivoli, which is rather extraordinary. But the next year, in 1855, he decided to follow his mother and most of his siblings who had returned to the United States, where in the mid 1850s, New York was booming and construction projects were everywhere. And he would return to the US on a mission to improve American architecture. Importing a style and a movement that would become known as the Beaux-Arts style.
2: One that would be defined, of course, by the classical principles that he had picked up in France. Now, to be fair, New York had some pretty good architecture. Let's not <laughs> let's not go crazy, right? We had like New York City Hall, which was in the French Renaissance style. Richard Upjohn, his friend, upgraded Trinity Church in that Gothic Revival style, and then of course the grand glass-domed Crystal Palace Exhibition Hall in the northern reaches of the city in Bryant Park.
3: All of which were very nice and interesting, but clearly Mm -hmm. there was a lot of room to
2: grow. And Richard Morris Hunt would be partially responsible for that upgrade. So interestingly, he rents a studio at the University of the City of New York. That's down in his old neighborhood here, right off of Washington Square Park. Today, that is NYU. Their original building, that Gothic Revival University building, somewhat resembling a cathedral. So that's where he moves in when he comes to New York. And he's quite the curiosity to the college students who are wandering around his studio and peering inside because being a gentleman of wealth who traveled all over the place in Europe, he had filled his studio with all sorts of exotic treasures. A friend of his name, Theodore Winthrop actually immortalizes him in a novel and described the studio as quote, containing models of the most mythological temples and the most Christian spires and towers. There were prints and pictures, curiosities in iron and steel, in enamel and ivory, in glass and gem, in armor and weapon.
3: All things that he probably picked up during his crazy travels around
2: Europe and the Middle East. Mm Mm-hmm. So where did he get started? Where were his early jobs? Well, believe it or not, in 1856, he was briefly employed for a few months as a draftsman down in Washington, D.C., working on the expansion of the U.S. Capitol building. So already (laughs) as a young man, he had the Louvre and the U.S. Capitol building like on his resume. Check and check. His LinkedIn
3: profile was out (laughs) of control.
2: He came back to New York in the spring and began developing some local commissions. One of his first major jobs was a house for a man named Thomas Rossiter at Seventeen West Thirty Eighth Street. This was a very lovely house. It's it's gone today, like so many of his works. But for Hunt, it actually became a major headache because Rossiter's father-in-law, who was footing the bill, thought that. Hunt had overcharged for the whole project and refused to pay the bills. The whole thing was such a mess, and it was eventually taken to court, and not really fully resolved until 1861. Would he finally get reimbursed? Well, he did receive a a commission, a modest commission, although the trial exposed several missteps in Hunt's process. You know, he's he's a young architect at this time. Chalk it all up as a really big learning experience for him. And like everything that Hunt would later do, this case actually has great significance to the world of American architecture today. For it's here that you see that Hunt is really standing up for his own worth and for his talent. To quote from the historian Alan Burnham, this celebrated lawsuit helped to establish to the public at large what his professional standing was in relation to his client. And further, it was one of the many instances in which Hunt fought to establish the rights of the architect, unquote. And this
3: would be a theme that we would see carried out in many levels during his career. He elevated the artistry of the architect, but also the profession itself, the
2: business side of architecture. Yes, the reputation of it, yes. And then artistry that you mentioned is really reflected in his first great work in New York City, an artist studio complex called the 10th Street Studio at 51 West 10th Street, built in 1857, designed by Hunt to serve a growing need for studio space. In the village, okay, so it had already been a little bit of a growing bohemian area, and because of NYU, artists were, you know, being drawn more and more to the village. But there was no actual space for artists to really create properly. The Tenth Street Studio was a three-story structure with a domed interior gallery and 25 spacious studios that were, of course, immediately rented out. This place was so popular. One newspaper actually said, quote, it was as full as a Broadway omnibus on a rainy day. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds full and kind of moist and uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, the the studios might have been a little moist and uncomfortable, but... Moving on. (laughs) The 10th Street Studio actually inspired others to develop studio spaces throughout the neighborhood. And soon, Greenwich Village became known as an artist colony. And did Richard Morris Hunt move
3: his architectural atelier into
2: the 10th Street building? Oh yeah, he lugged all of that stuff from his university building studio, all those models and the bric-a-brac all that, into a studio here uh, but more than that, he became synonymous with this building's reputation it was like they were one and the same in a strange way, according to that Baker biography, quote even though he was not much older than the other artists, he perhaps came to be viewed with a certain respect because of his training at the Ecole, and and for what he had so quickly accomplished in New York, unquote. he became so quickly esteemed that he was able to train other budding artists. Uh, his studio became America's first architectural school. Among his students in his atelier would be future masters of architecture like Frank Furness and George Post. So when he had started
3: this atelier, this first architectural school, he's not even 30 years old, and already he's mentoring others and passing on these ideals of classical architecture
2: and and spreading this new Beaux-Arts movement. It was really everything. It was the history and philosophy of architecture, you know, that Mm -hmm. he was instructing on. The academics. The academics, yeah, but filtered through Hunt's own education and experience, And appreciation, right, from all that travel and seeing all those classical structures. You know, this would not be the only pipeline for new architectural ideas in the United States, of course, but it probably was, at least in the 1850s, it probably was the most influential. Hunt really did see himself on the forefront of an elevated profession. From Baker's book, quote, "...to the public at large, there seemed to be little distinction between an architect and a carpenter builder." Both seemed to do the same kind of work, and many people apparently thought that the term architect was only a fancy name for a carpenter, unquote. Hmm.
3: So then it was Hunt's mission to change that perception,
2: to take architecture Mm -hmm. into its own career. Yes, and he did so in 1857 with the foundation of the American Institute of Architects, joining several other prominent architects, including... His old friend Richard Upjohn, the city's prominent church builder, and Leopold Eidlitz, who would go on to design the Brooklyn Academy of Music and Tweed Courthouse. So that's 1857, and this institution would soon become one of New York's most esteemed organizations.
1: And
3: I love, by the way, Greg, that this is just like a a quick bullet point that, oh, yeah, by the way, he also
2: founded the AIA,
3: right? Well, Which is he's like... just
2: one of these, yeah, he's one of these guys, you know, we got to keep moving.
3: <laughs> by the way, they put out a great guidebook to uh, to the buildings oh, of yeah. New York. Mm-hmm. So when he, he wasn't founding these organizations, what
2: was he working on? Good question. Throughout the Civil War and into the 1870s, Hunt would work on a wide variety of of projects, both here in the New York area, right into the Gilded Age here, which was a period after the Civil War of exceptional wealth. But he worked on projects all over the place. For instance, the Chicago mansion of dry goods mogul Marshall Field had a house designed by Richard Morris Hunt in 1871. But in terms of commissions outside of New York, Hunt would be most famed for his work in Newport, Rhode Island, where he started working on lavish summer homes as early as 1860. And Newport, of course, would develop into this luxury
3: resort just filled with luxurious cottages. We put that in quotes, an understated name for what they really were, opulent mansions. But those would really develop in the 1880s and 1890s, and many of them would be designed by Hunt. But already here in the 1860s and 70s, he was building a career.
2: Yes, uh, resort architecture is what they called it. Many of the wood frame houses that were designed by Hunt in the 1860s and 70s were true, on the opulent end of the word cottage, you know, this isn't Hansel and Gretel's house, right? (laughs) These were like three-story mansions that had dozens of rooms, but they would seem kind of modest compared to the things that would come afterwards. Now, his brother, the aforementioned William, the painter, William Morris Hunt, his older brother lived in Newport, and it was through him that Richard met Catherine Clinton Howland, who was from a wealthy merchant family. They fell in love and got married in 1861. And throughout the rest of their lives together, they would live both in New York and in Newport. And Hunt would really work
3: on so many of these big houses here and in New York all over the place. They'd be his Mm -hmm. bread and butter, his pain and butter. But he, of course, would work on
2: a, a, a wide range of buildings, including civic buildings and commercial buildings. And not even just buildings, Tom. Uh, he also worked on monuments of different types. Ah. You know, often working on the bases or the pedestals of sculptural works. You can actually find an early example of Hunt's pedestal work. In Central Park, there is a war memorial for those of the 7th Regiment who died during the Civil War. So there's a statue to the 7th Regiment by John Quincy Adams Ward of a soldier standing watch over the park. But he is standing on a base designed by Richard Morris Hunt.
3: You know, we just don't spend enough time on this show talking about pedestals, Greg. Statuary (laughs) pedestals. But without them, I mean, the statues would just fall over. It would be disgraceful. And that's a beautiful statue. There might be a bigger one coming.
2: He might not be out of the pedestal game yet. That's true. Speaking of Central Park, by the way, before we leave Central Park, I should mention a commission that he actually did not get. Hunt had intended to make an even greater contribution to the park when in 1865, he crafted an extraordinary design for four southern entrances to the park, including those at the corner of 5th Avenue and 8th Avenue. And he had really staked his reputation on getting this commission. This would have been the biggest thing in his career up to this moment. He even displayed his designs in shop windows and sold reproductions of his work. Wow! But Hunt had miscalculated. Oh, how had he miscalculated? It seems like Hunt
3: would be the guy you would go to to build Mm -hmm. monumental gates to Central Park.
2: Well, his ideas were too ornate for the time, with large gates and fountains and even a set of grand monuments. You know, keep in mind, 1865, and Central Park is very new. It wasn't even done yet. No, take another decade, really. The park's designers, Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox, were repulsed by the vulgarity of Hunt's <laughs> designs. And the public more or less agreed with them, actually, um, which must have been a real slap in the face, I can imagine. And you also just don't want Olmsted and Vox on your bad side, especially at this point in your career. So the gates were rejected, which was a rare defeat for such an architect whose career was really going nowhere but up in every other regard. Maybe it was just too
3: early. It was only the 1860s and New York was, you know, it was going to grow into its
2: fabulous flourishes. (laughs) In future decades, such ornamentation would be more fashionable. This commission probably would have been approved as is like 25 years later, but alas, a little early. Well, speaking of changing tastes, I should mention one of my favorite Richard Morris Hunt commissions, which was a very novel project near Gramercy Park built for Rutherford Stuyvesant, a building of French flats, considered the very first apartment building in New York. It opened in 1870, designed by Hunt, and it housed many interesting notables of the day, including The Widow to George Custer. But this building, which had a lot of eccentrics and interesting people in it, also had artist studios. So there's even a connection to earlier work that Hunt had done. French
3: Flats, uh, otherwise, yes, known as the first apartment building in New York City. So there's another bullet point for an amazing <laughs> Richard Morris yes. Hunt
2: first, the French Flat. But many of these works, these early works, as beautiful as they may be, will be absolutely dwarfed by the work that he is about to do along Fifth Avenue and even on a little island in New York Harbor. Richard Morris Hunt defines the look of the Gilded Age after this. So what's remarkable is Hunt is so in demand during the 1870s with so many different kinds of commissions, even though, by the way, there is a massive financial panic in the year 1873, which, of course, is putting the brakes on a lot of these big things. Yes, but he just
3: kept on designing, uh, including two structures that were landmarks in New York for many decades, which have since vanished. The first is the New York Tribune Building, which is often considered the city's first skyscraper, as it was taller than any other structure in the city other than, Greg? Trinity Church? <laughs> that's right, the spire of Trinity Church. By his friend Richard Upjohn, that place? <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. always a good It's always a good trivia question. The Tribune, which had been founded by Horace Greeley in the 1840s, hired Hunt to design a grandiose new headquarters, which was located just across from City Hall on Printing House Square, or Newspaper Row. And it would not only house the newspaper, but it would also rent out floors to other businesses. And the building could be uncommonly tall because it would be equipped with those newfangled devices known as elevators. Those made those upper floors workable, even desirable because of the view and the light the building would open in 1875 and an addition would be added in the early 1880s and what exactly made this a landmark its sheer size and its height for one thing it was a brick and stone structure that shot up a whopping 10 flights including uh, two floors that were in the attic level and it was topped by a clock tower the whole thing rose 260 feet above the sidewalk. When you look at contemporary images and photos from the time, you can see that it kind of like shoots up over its neighboring buildings, kind of like the tall kid in a class photo. A tall kid with a clock tower for a face? Maybe. <laughs> Certainly, you know, the clock tower that was influenced by by clock towers that he'd sketched while he had been in Europe. It was a bit of an odd design like the tower was sitting rather uneasily on top of the building. And not to get ahead of ourselves, but the building would actually get taller and perhaps even more awkward in 1905 when new construction techniques allowed them to add another 10 floors to the building uh, and they would reconstruct a new clock
2: tower on top of those. And this remarkable and strange building would remain in Lower Manhattan right across the street from City Hall until it was finally demolished in 1966.
3: Yes, and Pace University sits there today. The second major landmark that Hunt designed that is no longer there was commissioned by a philanthropist and a very wealthy New Yorker named James Lennox, who had already commissioned... Richard Morris Hunt, to construct the Presbyterian Hospital on the Upper East Side a few years before. So James Lennox was a philanthropist, he was uh, also an art collector, and he was also a serious bibliophile. His book collection was legendary. I mean, it was almost like at the level of a hoarder, right? He had stacks of valuable (laughs) books on art and religion and literature that literally filled his townhouse on Fifth Avenue and 12th Street. Thousands and thousands of books. And so he decided to establish a scholarly library to hold his collection and to make it accessible to
2: scholars. Now Lennox and his family had owned all of this farmland, even here into the 1870s up here on the Upper East Side. But that hospital had been developed on that land. In fact, today, the area around here is named Lenox Hill. That's correct, yes.
3: Hunt had designed the hospital, which opened in 1872, on Madison, between Madison and Park and 70th and 71st Street. And so he also decided to commission Hunt to design a library for his collection, along 5th Avenue between 70th and 71st Street, which is a pretty amazing address, although in the early 1870s, it was pretty far north of the action. And Hunt designed a pretty austere building, beautiful, classical. It It would be open to visitors in 1877, although the reading rooms
2: wouldn't actually be open for another five years. So what is it exactly that visitors were doing in these five years before the reading room was open? Uh, well, <laughs> Just wandering around like looking at artwork or Yes. He had filled the place with his
3: art, his paintings, also rare books, a Gutenberg Bible under glass cases. But the Lennox Library was a beautiful classical styled Beaux-Arts structure with limestone facing, enormous arched windows and grand reading rooms. And the New York Times reviewed the art collection on January 18th, 1877, years before the books had actually been added. The Times also wrote that, quote, the Lennox Gallery is to be a permanent fact, just as the library will be in the course of time. In all likelihood, it will remain one of the
2: ornaments of future New York. But of course, it's no longer standing at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 70th Street. Uh, Whatever happened to it? Well, in the 1890s, its collection would be merged with that
3: of another privately funded library, the Astor Library, along with money provided by the late Samuel Tilden to form the New York Public Library. And that would then get a fabulous new home about 30 blocks south of the Lenox Library on 5th Avenue at 42nd Street, which would be completed in 1911. And meanwhile, back up here, Henry Clay Frick... Would buy up the property in order to build himself a mansion because he didn't feel like living
2: in a library. He did offer to move the whole library into Central Park, which was interesting, but they did not take him up on that offer. Or we might have had a Central Park library. A very interesting concept.
3: People were kind of worried about, you know, precedent that that might set. Ultimately, the
2: Lennox Library was demolished in 1912. All right, so you've given us two examples of prominent Richard Morris Hunt creations here. The the New York Tribune building and the Lenox Library, both of which are no longer with us. But they typify the voluminous number of commissions that were coming in for Hunt to work on.
3: Which led him to near exhaustion. And in fact, his doctor recommended another trip to Europe to relax here in the 1870s. Unfortunately, the next several years would be very difficult ones for Richard and his family because while he was visiting Germany in 1875 to relax, his elder brother John, who was a physician living in Paris, died by suicide in Paris, and the family returned home. Two years later, in late 1877, his beloved mother, who had introduced him and the whole family to Europe, died. And then two years after that, in 1879, Richard's well-known brother, William Morris Hunt, the painter,
2: also died by suicide in Boston. Sometimes when we tell these stories, you get so caught up in the grand accomplishments, especially when, like in Hunt's case, there are so many of them. But you do forget that he had a personal life, that he was a family man, and that he experienced great tragedy.
3: Yeah, he had a very happy marriage and several children, uh, but he was often sick and exhausted. Uh, But he he soldiered on. During this time in the 1870s, he designed projects off at Princeton University. He designed a library and a chapel, even laboratories. And then in the late 1870s, he was hired by William Kissam
2: Vanderbilt. I knew the Vanderbilts were lurking around here somewhere. They have finally (laughs) arrived into the story. So William Kissam Vanderbilt, how does he fit in here?
3: Well, William Kissam, or Willie Kay, was the grandson of Commodore Vanderbilt, okay? And the Commodore had left nearly all of his fortune to his son, William. William passed along much of that fortune to two of his sons, the, the rather serious Cornelius Vanderbilt II
2: and his younger brother, William Kissam Vanderbilt. And Cornelius Vanderbilt II was married to Alice Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And William Kissam Vanderbilt was married to Alva.
3: Alva. That's right. Alva. Okay. Yes. On my wall, because of this other podcast, I have the (laughs) Astor family tree and the Vanderbilt family tree. It comes in very handy. Alva and Alice, let us not confuse them. Okay? Alice and Cornelius had met when they were both Sunday school teachers, very serious. Alva and Willie K were no Sunday school teachers. Um, but <laughs> but Alva was very socially ambitious, combative, determined to make the Vanderbilts leaders of New York's high society. And she was determined to become the dominant Mrs. Vanderbilt even if her husband was not the eldest, right? She always had this thing going on with Alice, because Alice was married to Cornelius, the
2: older brother. But I have to say, Alice was pretty determined and ambitious herself.
3: Yes, even if she was rather devout and serious and stern. And in the 1880s and 1890s, both Alva and Alice would work closely with Richard Morris Hunt. Uh, So which one got Richard Morris Hunt first? (laughs) Willie, Willie Kay, Alva's husband, hired Hunt to design his Long Island estate, Idle Hour, and work began on that in 1878. By the way, that's an estate that we mentioned in our Gatsby's Gold Coast show, Mm -hmm. our road trip from last year. But the most famous of the projects that Hunt undertook for Willie K. Vanderbilt started in 1878 when he hired Hunt to design his new Fifth Avenue mansion, which would be constructed at the northwest corner of Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street. And here, Hunt would design for Willie Kay and Alva, a French Renaissance-style chateau that was completed
2: in 1882 at a cost of more than $3 million. And believe it or not... There would be many more French chateaus on 5th Avenue, even some later in the show. But Alvis here would be one of the first on 5th Avenue.
3: There had been other smaller residences that sported some Renaissance flair, but nothing this large had been constructed. This white marble chateau with its 37 rooms across four main floors, plus attic floors, bay windows, balconies, balustrades, arches, mansard roof, spires, and tower. It absolutely dominated the entire corner of the block. It, it dominated Fifth Avenue. And up at its very tip-top, on top of the roof, was a nearly life-size statue of Richard Morris Hunt, who was dressed as a stonemason.
2: Wait, he, he himself <laughs> appeared in the architecture?
3: He did, yes. He's like one of those old master's paintings where they work themselves into a little corner. And this house was so different from, you know, the housing that most of New York society was living in. Mrs. Astor would still live for another decade, you know, in her brownstone that was down on 34th and 5th Avenue. And society had been largely following her lead up to this moment. And then here comes Alva with this urban chateau that made quite a statement. She was saying that the Vanderbilts had arrived, and and furthermore, that New York's richest and most powerful families deserved to live in palaces just like European aristocrats had been living in palaces centuries before, because they, the leaders of New York society,
2: were the new aristocracy. How profound and also a bit obnoxious, actually. And they were literally living with old aristocratic furnishings that had been imported across the ocean from europe
3: yeah, yeah the we 're talking about the exteriors, but the the interiors of these new residential palaces would be filled with paintings and heavy old furniture and tapestries you know brought from old European palaces and estates
2: so work on alva 's house. The Richard Morris Hunt-designed Petite Chateau is completed. <laughs> what kind of a housewarming do you have? Like, what do you bring? Do you bring a bottle of red or something? Or, like, <laughs> what do you bring as a gift for that kind of a housewarming?
3: What does one bring to Alva Vanderbilt's housewarming party? Well, <laughs> a casserole. <I> don't... <laughs> you just needed to bring a, a pretty good costume, because Alva Vanderbilt mm. threw a costume ball For the ages. This was, in fact, the largest ball the city had ever seen. It was held here in the Petit Chateau on the night of March 26, 1883, at a price tag of about $250,000. The city was absolutely buzzing about this. As preparations were underway and elaborate costumes were created, there was a lot of drama because Mrs. Astor's daughter, Carrie, had been preparing a dance, a quadrille, with a group of friends to kick off the event, only to find that neither she nor her mother had been invited to Alva's
2: Ball. <gasps> but didn't they need the Astors to be there, you know, if they wanted to get into the good graces of high society? She did need them, but but in Alva's rather
3: calculated brilliance, she had determined that she couldn't possibly invite Mrs. Astor or her daughter Carrie because Caroline Astor had never called on Alva Vanderbilt. She had, in fact, been snubbing and ignoring Alva for years. And thus, you know, I mean, how could Alva possibly invite her if she didn't even know her? We might call that a flex, actually, today. (laughs) Like, so did this work? Oh, like a charm, yeah. According to legend, Mrs. Astor quickly dropped off a calling card, and the last invite's, headed down to the Astor's Brownstone at 34th and 5th Avenue. And like that, Alva, and by extension the Vanderbilt family, had arrived. The New York Times published an account the next day on its front page under the headline, All Society in Costume. They wrote, quote, The Vanderbilt Ball has agitated New York society more than any social event that has occurred in many years. It has disturbed the sleep and occupied the waking hours of social butterflies, both male and female.
2: You never want to disturb the sleep of social butterflies, or really any butterflies in in my personal experience. Never. Let them sleep. But this anecdote, this, this tale of this house, is sort of an example of, many different types of projects that are happening up and down Fifth Avenue, right? These same types of lavish palaces that are being constructed for for New York's wealthy Gilded Age elite.
3: Including many more mansions for the Vanderbilts themselves. They created uh, what was called a Vanderbilt Row. Willie and Alva's son, Willie K. Vanderbilt II, hired McKim, Mead, and White, in fact, to construct his own chateau next door to his parents more than 20 years later.
2: Stunningly, this petite chateau, one of the greatest structures that Hunt had ever designed, would only stand there for about 40 years, for about four decades.
3: Unlike, of course, the French Renaissance chateaus that it copied, that have stood for hundreds of years, the Vanderbilt Petit Chateau was sold in 1925 and demolished the next year and replaced by an office building. That building has since been replaced as well, and on the ground floor of the current structure sits a Zara.
2: But the Vanderbilts were not done with Richard Morris Hunt. Oh, no. Both Alva and Alice would hire him up in Newport,
3: but even William K. Vanderbilt's father, William Henry Vanderbilt, hired Hunt to design the family's mausoleum in 1885 at the Moravian Cemetery on Staten Island, which was completed in 1889. And let us not skip over perhaps his most famous monument of all, the pedestal for Lady Liberty herself, which he'd been selected to design in the early 1880s, but construction had been stalled due to an embarrassing lack of funds. And this then led to various fundraisers and then the very public appeals and, uh, for donations uh, that were published by Joseph Pulitzer in the New York World. Finally, the money was raised and, and Hunt's pedestal constructed and the Statue of Liberty was installed and inaugurated in New York Harbor
2: on October 28, 1886. So by the 1890s, while there may have been younger and more fashionable architects versed in the Beaux-Arts style – and like to underscore this, the Beaux-Arts style, what we mean, are these various European architectural styles like the French Renaissance and the Italian Baroque – but using modern materials like glass and iron, and then, of course, done in this grand American rendition. So, i.e., much of it large and grandiose. But all based on these principles
3: that he had learned as a student in Paris and through his travels. And then, by now, in the 1890s, other American architects had gone off to Paris, received formal instruction and education at the Ecole des Beaux Arts, and were returning to New York to join Hunt in this
2: new movement. However, none would be as respected or revered as Richard Morris Hunt, who rubbed shoulders with presidents and moguls and seemed to be involved in some way with pretty much every significant building project in America. He even came up with a plan for a brand new campus for Columbia University, in Morningside Heights when they moved uptown in the 1890s. However, that commission eventually went to the hot new architectural firm in town. That would be McKim, Mead, and White, who nonetheless did lay out the campus in many of the Beaux-Arts philosophies that Hunt had championed his entire career. McKim, Mead, and White, Charles McKim, who had studied in
3: Paris at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, and Stanford White, and William Mead. I think many people today think of McKim, Mead, and White as really the leading force of the Beaux-Arts
2: movement in New York at the time. Yeah, they were truly prolific, and they continued working into the 20th century and on the same types of commissions as Hunt. In many cases, they would replace structures that had been designed by Hunt— in Previous years that had now been considered passe. They were also becoming fashionable when people had even more money than before. And they were members of the same gentlemen's clubs and befriended the same wealthy families as Hunt. So it's kind of like a
3: passing of a Beaux Arts baton from Richard Morris Hunt to McKinney
2: and White. Yeah, I mean, you could say that in a sense, but you know, sometimes they did work together on certain projects. And in fact, one massive architectural undertaking brought most of America's greatest architects together like a some kind of a super group, like the Avengers of architects, <laughs> if you will. And that project was the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, otherwise known as the Chicago World's Fair,
3: where they basically built an entire city on the south side of Chicago on
2: the On the shores of Lake Michigan. Among the super team of architects who created this temporary, quote, white city was director Daniel Burnham, Mm -hmm. known in New York a decade later as the architect of the Flatiron Building, Frederick Law Olmsted, who we mentioned earlier, who designed the grounds, and other great architects for particular buildings, such as Charles McKim, who made the agricultural building, and Richard Morris Hunt who designed one of the central buildings at the fair called the Administration Building. Quoting from writer Aaron Zephyr, quote, The central octagonal dome was obviously the building's most distinguished feature, higher and wider than that of the U.S. Capitol building, and visible from just about anywhere on the fairgrounds. As it was intended to be temporary, the administration building was built of a thick, reinforced plaster on an iron and wood skeleton. It was painted white to create the illusion of marble and fulfill Burnham's image of a white city. And this fair also, I mean, it really
3: served as a kind of advertisement for Beaux-Arts architecture itself. It helped popularize
2: the style. It even inspired an urban development movement known as the City Beautiful, a design philosophy involving the creation of grand public spaces and architecture that expressed civic duty and moral virtue. Hunt was very much central to this idea in New York. He actually became president of the Municipal Arts Society, which was established on March 22nd, 1893, And this society promoted such beautification efforts in the city. Meanwhile, while all of this is (laughs) going on, because he's like, That's all, right? While that's going on, Hunt was also working on massive, massive size houses, bigger than ever, up in Newport. By 1892, we had the Marble House, which was completed for. William Kissam Vanderbilt and his wife Alva. So that's another home for them. That's 1892. It's not covered in an iron and wood skeleton. (laughs) Then, of course, Cornelius Vanderbilt II and Alice, they didn't want to be left out in the cold. So Hunt designed the largest house in Newport for them called the Breakers with 70 rooms on a cliff overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. Tom, you just happened to be at the Breakers like <laughs> last week, right? <laughs> in, in fact, a week
3: ago, right now, yes, I was. I went up to the Breakers to check it out because, among other things, you know, in addition to being able to visit it and understand Newport a little bit better, they shot several scenes from the Gilded Age in the Breakers, uh, in the billiard mm-hmm. room, the music room stands in for the Russells' ballroom on the show. So I spent two wonderful, freezing February days. Up in Newport, Rhode Island, highly recommended. And it's a it's a big house, right? Would you, would you describe it as big? <laughs> this really underscores Hunt's command of monumental architecture. But wait,
2: it only gets bigger. <laughs> for For Hunt, builds a house that is much larger. That makes the Breakers look like a little shack. Okay, now this project is not in Newport, and it's not in New York. It was in Asheville, North Carolina, but it was for another Vanderbilt. It was for George Vanderbilt.
3: Yes, George Washington Vanderbilt, who had been born in 1862. He was the youngest brother of Cornelius II and William Kissam. And
2: he was not going to be left out of this palace bonanza. So he first came to Asheville in 1888. He fell in love with the area, then pretty much bought up most of it for this stately palace. And being a Vanderbilt, of course, he brought Hunt into the picture, as well as Frederick Law Olmsted was also involved. Hunt, of course, had smoothed things over with him since that whole Central Park debacle couple decades previous (laughs) and so then they combined their efforts to create a 250 room chateau known as biltmore and biltmore
3: obviously still stands today it is the largest privately held residence
2: in the united states The house is over 175,000 square feet. (laughs) Uh, The original land acreage bought by Vanderbilt was 125,000 acres, or about the size of Brooklyn and Queens combined. Today's Biltmore Estate is more modest in scale. It's only 8,000 acres, or a little over half the size of Manhattan. That's all. Much more reasonable. Much more reasonable, according to author Denise Kiernan in her book The Last Castle, a good read, by the way, quote, as the house rose and its outline became apparent, it began to hold its own against the dramatic backdrop. Hunt wrote his wife Catherine and said that the mountains were, quote, just the right size and scale for the chateau. (laughs) Catherine would later declare Biltmore her husband's greatest professional joy. Well, I think he really enjoyed working with George. I think they got along well. In fact, by the summer of 1895, the house was nearly complete. And George Vanderbilt was even planning a lavish opening party for that Christmas. But work on the house stopped on July 31st, 1895, when Vanderbilt received some terrible news. Richard Morris Hunt had died. His grueling schedule had made him very ill, yet he persevered through all of it until he died from heart failure at his home in Newport, Rhode Island. Quoting from the Brooklyn Citizen newspaper the following day, quote, Among all those who have watched the growth and progress of architecture in this country the past 30 years, there will be much regret regarding the death yesterday of Richard Morris Hunt he was really one of the first architects of distinction that the country had the good fortune to possess.
3: But but wait, this is 1895. Didn't he still
2: have projects that were still underway? Yeah, I mean, this was such a sudden shock because he had been so active and so engaged. There were so many projects that were in the midst of construction. For instance, just as Biltmore was being completed down in North Carolina— Another Gilded Age mansion that was designed by Hunt was being finished at 65th Street and 5th Avenue, the home of Mrs. Caroline Astor, the former doyenne of high society, although here by the 1890s she had faded a bit from view. Hunt had designed a French Renaissance mansion in two sections, so she lived alone in the north part and her son John Jacob Astor IV in the southern section. Hunt had helped choose many of the interior choices, including a peacock-tailed rug in the reception room, but sadly, he was not here to escort her through the door when she finally moved in in 1896. But perhaps the most beloved, certainly the most viewed example of Hunt's many buildings is the Fifth Avenue entrance of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, Hunt had been involved with the museum from the very beginning. He presented his work to expand the Fifth Avenue entrance to the committee in the spring of 1895, just a few months before his death. So his son, Richard Howland Hunt, completed the work on the new entrance and hall, which finally opened to the public in 1902. And those grand wings of the building that are kind of attached to that entrance hall, they were designed by Charles McKim. Wow. Quoting from Morrison Heckscher, the curator emeritus at the museum, quote, "'Praise the day it opened as the most outstanding building of its kind in the city, one of the finest in the world. It continues to serve perfectly its original intended function as a grand ceremonial entrance to a vast museum complex.'" What more fitting conclusion to a career of one of the leading figures in American 19th century architecture and the first dean of the profession, unquote.
3: What's amazing is that this Fifth Avenue entrance and hall to the Metropolitan Museum is still there. And of course, the pedestal, the Statue of Liberty is there and the, the Newport mansions in Biltmore are still around. But so many of the structures that he
2: designed in New York City have have been demolished. Not only were most of the Fifth Avenue mansions wiped away in the 20th century, but Hunt and really all of the Beaux-Arts architecture would later be considered gaudy and unmanageable and would later be destroyed. In fact, it was the elimination of Beaux-Arts masterpieces like Old Pennsylvania Station that formed the basis of the modern preservation movement and the formation of landmarking laws.
3: And to be fair to those who demolished some of these structures, I mean, those huge old mansions were very expensive to run, right? And to heat and to maintain. I mean, the economics were not on the side of maintaining these opulent Fifth Avenue mansions.
2: No, many of Hunt's greatest works were simply out of place in the modern world. But there exists one monument that still stands today. That is, it's not by Hunt, but it's dedicated to Richard Morris Hunt, in 1898, a memorial to Hunt was erected on 5th Avenue and 70th Street, near where many of his greatest works had once stood. It was funded by several art societies, including the Municipal Art Society. A bust of Hunt was designed by Daniel Chester French, and it was presented in a ceremony led by George Post, who had been a young architect, trained Hunt in his atelier down at the 10th Street studio. Installed here at 5th
3: Avenue and 70th Street with a bust of Hunt looking across 5th Avenue at
2: the time at his Lennox library. Hundreds of artists, architects, and artisans were in attendance, many of them trained by Hunt and all of them grateful for Hunt's lifelong promotion of their professions. Well, for images of many of the works that we've discussed today, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com.
3: We'll also link to the numerous other podcasts we've done that sort of intersect with today's topic. We, we actually had to hold ourselves back from constantly saying, <laughs> and we have, a, we have another show on that. We have a show on the Statue of Liberty. We have a show on, on the Metropolitan Museum. We have a show on the New York Public Library
2: etc. And you can find a full list of those back catalog episodes of subjects we've mentioned on the show on our website, com.
3: A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. It's because of you that Greg and I are able to dedicate all of our time to producing, researching, and recording the Bowery Boys podcast. We wouldn't have a show without you, our fabulous community, Of patrons
2: we also have bonus audio for you over there on the patreon app including a show that tom and i did just last week which is a discussion of the gilded age in general and the gilded age his work on the podcast based on the hbo show it's very meta It's inception <laughs> a little bit. Um, but it's a really fun, but it's a really fun show to listen to. And of course, there's also the full length interview with my guests from the last show, Louis Armstrong House yeah. and Museum. So you can catch all of that and join fellow patrons, Pat L, Sarah B, Laura M, Heidi R, Matt S, Dan L, and Denise. Thank you for supporting the Bowery Boys on Patreon.
3: Also, be sure to check out our spinoff show, The Gilded Gentleman. Carl Raymond spends all of his time in the Gilded Age and has tackled many subjects that we spoke about today, including Alva Vanderbilt, opening night of the new Metropolitan
2: Opera. It's a great, fun show. Check it out at The Gilded Gentleman. His latest shows are about domestic servants in the 19th century, which is fascinating. He speaks with Esther Crane from the Ephemeral New York blog, and he also has a wickedly fun show on Ward McAllister, who helped Mrs. Caroline Astor form the Restrictive High Society of the 1880s. You can find The Guild Gentleman the same place that you found this podcast. So thank you for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.